This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Whakatane, or somewhere near there, by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How are you? What are you up to this afternoon? Um, I'm sitting uh, next to the Tarawera River, about halfway between Matata and Edgecombe, waiting for Jack and his dad to come back from duck shooting. Good. And As thinking... And thinking about writing a chapter on decolonising rural health. Yes, and I, and actually I've made a start on that, you'll be pleased to know. That's fantastic. And who are we introducing today? It is my great pleasure to introduce Nigel Howarth, who I am actually a massive fan of for so many reasons. Nigel's an academic, um, an economist. He uh, was the uh, president of the New Zealand Labour Party when I met him. That was what he was doing uh, and um, is still um, now uh, practising in education as a part-time academic. Uh, Nigel, your contribution to our world has been significant for such a long time and it's a it's a great pleasure uh, to have you and thanks for joining us today. It's a delight to be here. Welcome Nigel. Where are you Nigel? I'm in Auckland in Westmere at my, in my home uh, which has not been rocked by early morning earthquakes which I gather has been uh, <laughs> the, the existence of some other places today but uh, uh, very much in the heartland of Auckland. And we've been asking people how their bubble life has been, and of course now it's turned into a bubble life and a traffic light and a still a traffic light, but kind of a post-traffic light. How's your bubble life been? It's been interesting. I mean, it, it's been a, a what they call a cure its egg, good, good and bad at the same time. Um, one of the perverse effects was that our daughter, who had just come back from London, working in London, and her partner came to live with us for the bubble. So we, we hadn't seen her for three years, really. Uh, so that was that was fantastic. Um, and so the four of us, uh, through the big bubble, as it were, lived very happily. Um, but of course, it was a, an interesting experience in that, in the, in, in, for, for several months being closeted together. And we, uh, we still like each other, which is a lovely thing. <laughs> well done. You haven't sent her back to England. No, one would not do that with Boris there. It's just not fair. <laughs> and Mawera said that you've tried to retire, but it hasn't worked. Have you been working, sort of, as well? Oh, well, I, I, I retired formally from the university, I think, in 2018, so I could devote my, my attentions to the Labour Party um, full-time. Uh, 
subsequently, uh, they, they have inveigled me back into, into the workplace where I'm doing some staff development work with uh, research staff and uh, currently acting as the director of the New Zealand Asia Institute, um, where I have a historical interest in, in, in New Zealand Asia uh, relations. Have you still got students? Uh, my very last PhD is being examined now. I, I've, I've lost track. It's something over 30. Uh, but the, the, my very last one, the reports are coming in now. And shortly that will be um, uh, the end of my teaching career, 40, 50 years of teaching, which I hadn't quite thought of it. That <laughs> way, but yes, quite a milestone. You don't think you could be tempted back? Oh, I'm, 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 I'm too old. The staff these days are much sharper with technology. You should see the way that younger staff now uh, use technology for teaching in a most sophisticated and interesting manner. I'm still the, um, uh, I belong to the chalk and talk, uh, five really interesting anecdotes every hour school of, <laughs> of, of delivery. Uh, uh, I, I can work a computer, but uh, the interface they now work with is, is not for me, I don't think. So you managed to dodge moving everything onto Zoom? I have lived quite a lot on Zoom, I have to say, and um, uh, it, 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 it required several people to sort of mouth to me because I turned the sound off, uh, in those sorts of issues. But I have now learnt to do this reasonably well. And, uh, and so I, I won't say I'm a dab hand, but I'm, I'm there or thereabouts. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Inti Ilimani, Al Taurus. Why this one? Um I chose two pieces of work that sandwiched my my career, actually. I began my research work in uh, Latin America. And Inti Ilimani is one of the most important groups from the popular unity period, the, the Allende period in Chile. Um, they I ran concerts for them in, Man in uh, Liverpool after the coup in 1973. Uh, we filled a thousand seater hall to hear these and it uh, is a band that has um, deep meaning for me.
Nigel, you have um, had an extraordinary career and I'm really interested to know what has been the, the most significant social change that you've seen uh, through our COVID time? Gosh, that's a really interesting, interesting question because I, I, I've long been concerned with the, about the, um, the decay in the social order, the, the, the sense in which our networks, our, our interactions have become more and more disparate and, and, and unconnected. I, I, I have a long analysis, which I won't bore you with, that it's to do with individualism and neoliberalism. Going, you know, that, that, that there's a powerful process going on here. Um, but when we when we go into lockdown, we go into these units and we uh, we we try using technology and so on to to talk to each other, but we we don't do it as well as we might. And I I um, I am concerned that it's another little uh, uh, erosion of social cohesion, a, a social cohesion we've built since the 1930s in New Zealand, really rather well. I'm not exactly sure what the role of the president of a political party is, but in my head, a big part of it is curating the people who represent us. Are you, do you think they've done a good job? Not, not individually, but as, as a, you know, as a mix of people, do you think that the, the current government has, has performed like you would have, would have hoped for? Oh, I think it's done extraordinarily well. I mean, one, one can hardly have expected when, when, as it were, when we were recruiting new members for the, for the, for the process uh, before 20, uh, 2017, for example, um, or indeed the existing members, the experienced members of, of the party who were in Parliament could never have expected the, 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 the effect of COVID. Um, it's been a most extraordinary thing. And I, 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 I take my hat off to the Prime Minister uh, who I regard as an extraordinary politician, a deftness, uh, uh, a seriousness, a genuine quality that is un unusual in my experience of politics. But she's led a team there that I think have done extraordinarily well. I, th I think the, uh, the finance minister, Grant, has stepped up very, very well indeed. Uh, Chris Hipkins, of course, I think has carried a, a, a weight and a half, and so have many of the other ministers. And, and MPs, but I also I, I, there you also have to give a shout out to the the officials. Uh, I don't think any of us can really capture what those officials must have been carrying in the Ministry of Health, in the health boards, and so on. It's been a, a grueling two or three years, um, and I think on the whole, compared with international experience, we've done very very well indeed. What I'm interested in is what led them to make the sorts of decisions that they made, the, the clearly science-based and empathy-based. Because when those when those um, MPs were being selected in their, their candidate selection meetings, whenever they were selected, you certainly didn't ask the question of how will you respond to a global pandemic? This, this is very true, and I, I, I think that that's one of the interesting things about not just the Labour Party in power, but actually probably about New Zealand. Um, the, the party in power, I think, recognised very quickly that it did not have all the information within the political process. It did not have 
the analysis it needed. And I think one of the things I've written about this, in fact, I've written a chapter in a book about this that's, that speaks to the openness to uh, take information and, and ideas from well-qualified professionals who have expertise in this area. And we're fortunate in New Zealand that we have a, 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 a coherent body of extraordinary skilled people in epidemiology and the broader medical sciences that go with that. And I think the combination of sensible political thinking, very good advice, very good advice, um, and a population that uh, I think saw that. I think a population understood that this was a really sensible set of, of uh, suggestions emerging for what we should do has seen us through this crisis. I mean, I, in 50 years' time, this will be seen as an extraordinary experience of success for New Zealand. When they write this up in future history books, this will be, a, 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 I think, a, a, a small golden period of the country working together very well indeed. Through some of uh, through some of our COVID time, you spent uh, a few months in Europe. Hmm. What was the difference? What was the main difference that you noticed between what was happening here and what was happening there, and the way that we were governed? I think the main difference I noticed was that they were living with COVID in a way that we weren't. Then, I spent um, uh, six or seven weeks in France uh, uh, over Christmas, over the last Christmas. And the, the systems were living, or if you like, coping with COVID, coping very well, but it was endemic in the community. Uh, it was, it was, it, you were, you were very much in the situation we are now. Uh, and they've been coping much longer as we are now with the reality of COVID in the community. Um, the, the excellent thing about France and indeed most of Europe is they have very good medical systems. Um, you know, the French one is extraordinarily uh, sophisticated, the Germans and so forth. Uh, and they have coped, I think, pretty well with that process. But for, when I was there, it was, that, it, was that, it was that sense that they were living with this reality, which we at that stage weren't. We were still very much um, unaffected in terms of major impact in, in infection and, and, of course, death, where it sadly happens sometimes. Nigel, you talked about when the history books of the the pandemic are written that people will learn from New Zealand. Do you think that we've already learnt about how we run societies from the pandemic? I, I think that we've we've learnt a lot about New Zealand from the pandemic. One of which some some aspects of that learning are quite positive the society works together well we have a, a capacity to uh, generate in crisis a common view and, and follow it through in the interests of everybody um, but coming back to my uh, a point I made earlier uh, I think the, the social glue the social cohesion that we've had is is being eroded for for, for other reasons as well as the pandemic right it's not and so we, I think we have a challenge that we, we do have a history and an experience of working together as a nation through crisis, uh, but we can't take that for granted. We're going to have to work, work on that in the future. Uh, I'm, I've been arguing for a long time, for example, that we should 
introduced civics, or what we used to call civics, into schools. I've been saying that um, my generation understood the cohesion of our society because my parents have fought in the war. They'd fought for, for this. They, they, you know, members of my family had died for this, as it were. And New Zealand lost so many people in, in trying to defend those, those conditions. Um, my children have no experience of that. They have no sense of the, the struggle, the, 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 the difficulty that was felt and experienced in building a coherent New Zealand after the Second World War. Um, they're more individualistic. They're more um, probably more selfish today than my parents were. Uh, and so we have to sort of re reinvigorate that sense of the, the two-way street, what we give to society just as society gives to us. I think that's a really important point. And I start at school in things like civics. I think the education system can do better on that. I think we can build in work better, a better sense of that you're not just working for yourself or your firm, but you're working for a broader success for the economy of New Zealand and so on. Um, but those things have to be worked for. They don't happen accidentally. And if you don't build them, you will lose them. One of the things that is... So is eroding that social cohesion, of course, is that we, we saw that, that period of time of the the prominence of the, the anti-vax, the anti-science, but also more deeply the the, the, the the almost the business sense of, you know, we've had enough of looking after the people. We need to go back to business now. And it doesn't matter what the cost of that is, is, is almost the feeling. What can we do as a society to to overcome that? I, I, I think you've made a really good point that the, one of the effects of, well, again, I'll call neoliberalism that appeared from the 80s onwards, uh, 70s onwards, if you think about Chile and places, is that we introduced a cost-benefit analysis for everything. Um, and you, you, once you start giving a price to everything, because price is so important to neoclassical economics, then you can price death, or you can price health, or you can price your, 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 the, the number of years you're on this planet and so forth. Um, and I think that that, uh, that was a tendency that does great disservice to, to the community and to people. And so we have to be really careful about uh, how we talk about people and how we value them in, in, in society. But there's a second thing that's going on here too, um, I'm old enough to remember the internet being seen as this extraordinarily liberating thing. That we were going to be able to talk to people, make our own films. We were going to be creative. It was going to be this massive burst of wonderful knowledge, not controlled by the media, blah, blah, blah. blah. And then partly that's true. That's absolutely true. There's extraordinary things. Huh? But it's also become perversely the scene of quite appalling lies, quite appalling mistruths, quite appalling representations of life that have no meaning whatsoever. Uh, and that's thoroughly dangerous to that sense of social cohesion. Now, I'm not a great fan of um, censorship because, you know, somebody has to be the person wielding the pen of censorship. And I might not agree with that person. You may not agree with that person. 
but I do think that there are constraints that have to be thought about for the for the net. And if we don't, if you want to look any further than Trump's America and the polit politics that came out on in Trump's America, um, or indeed look at the use of the net by Mr. Putin at the moment in in Russia, these these are all forms of using what I thought was going to be beneficial in a terribly dangerous way. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokadui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, I hope you're all having this day, beautiful superstars and beloved universes. I really hope wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together, proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining, and illuminating for you more each day who you are the triumph names are perfect unique and making better thank you now i'm talking with a very croaky voice but apparently not covid based on my latest test uh so thank you for bearing with me as i croak at you um i know for all of us that we are all going through this and i really appreciate the support of everyone around me and indeed all life infinite web and in fact being part of the show is a huge comfort and a huge huge gift to me and i'm so grateful to sam the whole blown books team to all of you for having me thank you so yes here we are and we are living a shared experience at all times and particularly over the last more than two years we've been sharing a very intense lived experience and we've had to learn from one another and we've had to really rely on one another in so many ways and i think this is a positive thing that we've been able to come together and help whether that's remotely or otherwise we've been able to try lots of new ways of doing being and feeling to get through this difficult time together i know for myself that having all the beautiful children return to me at Orokin has been so so uplifting and many of them have had COVID. Many of the people that I am interacting with now have had COVID. I haven't as yet, according to these tests, but we shall see. Um, and I feel really grateful for that. And I feel really grateful for all the experiences that I have heard about. So I really hope for you, wherever you're at on this journey, you're getting the support and love that you need. I know that for all of us, having a sense of being loved and a sense of being appreciated, having a sense of being cared for, having a sense of being held by a framework of love and support is so important. And for me, you know, that's what my life has contained for a long time, and I'm very lucky. And through my work with the living world, I have a sense of that infinite connection that is there to all life throughout time and space forever and that has really helped me immeasurably but I also see us as a species as innately generous and nurturing and caring and when I see these innate qualities embodied and shared it gives me so much happiness and so much hope hopiness and I hope that it can be the same for you we can find examples of the love and care that surrounds us we can find examples of the generosity and nurture that surrounds us. We can find examples of our innate ability to care for one another and for ourselves. And partly it's choosing to look for these and partly it's choosing to 
recognize that this is part of our self-care to find all of these signs of hope around us and treasure them, appreciate them. So I really hope for you that things are going really well and I'll look forward to talking. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We are talking with Nigel Haworth. Nigel, you're, you were talking before about your parents and the war and um, and, this, and that real suffering that so many families endured. And there must have been a high level of hopefulness that they had for the future that enabled them to just pick up and keep moving forward, which has enabled us to then be here today living this extraordinary life that we live. How do we instill that same hopefulness into our young people today when they look into their own future? Because it seems to me that it's just not there for so many of our youngsters. I, I think I think it's... Um in a single word it's it's hope um i think that many young people aren't certain about their work opportunities their capacities to buy a house to have accommodation that's safe and secure to have certainty about their health to be uh receiving the education that, that that's appropriate to them uh, the things that my generation had they, they weren't they weren't diffuse. They were quite prescriptive. You know, you you went to school, you did this, this, and this. But they they there was a profound sense that when you came out of work, you would get a job. I had four jobs when I graduated first in 1973. I had four jobs to go to. You know, people they were I won't say they were clamoring. I mean, they, nobody's ever clamoured for me. But <laughs> there there were there were multiple opportunities, right? And the sense that the labour market worked for you was quite important. Now, very rapidly, by the time we got into the 80s and the 90s, the labour market was acting as a filter against many people because of the nature of the economic model that we put in place. And uh, we've got to try and, I say, instill in people, younger people, that sense of um, pride, that sense of ownership of the, of, the, of the society they're in, that gives them the sense that they... They are going to contribute to something that is important. They will do so in a meaningful way. Uh, and if we don't give that to our young young people, then we are going to rue rue that failure quite badly. Uh, I, 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 I've got five children. We have five children, right? Um, and uh, you know, two of them are in in Europe. Three of them are here in, in Aotearoa. Um, but all of them are moved by that sense of the, 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 the they're, they're working for themselves but also for something else and it's one of the things that makes me very proud of all five as i sit here i'm i'm sitting in as you know sitting in in a truck um been waiting for jack and his dad to come back and they've arrived back and and i just watched his dad take a photo of jack uh with uh, two magpies that he's just shot. His first time duck shooting, and he's come back with two magpies, which is absolutely outstanding, I think. But he he has if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a magpie. <laughs> yep. But he's he's going to look for recipes. A... <laughs> I don't know about recipes for magpie, but I'm sure I'll think of something. But he has such a strong sense of responsibility for the future. And um, but then he's got parents who are who are very engaged in his life and, and helping him to, to part, pick that pathway. 
and I see a lot of our kids, you know, like we say, you know, we give our kids too much screen time, but we don't talk about the adults and their screen time and, and how, and that, you know, that screen addiction in adults. Um, and I, I worry about how we go forward from here when our kids don't have that, that connectedness to parents. Parents are looking at screens instead of looking at kids. Oh, I, I think that you're one of many people who worry about that sense of distance and dislocation that new technology is, is producing. I mean, it's, the, it's, the, it's another version of the point I made earlier that we thought this technology was going to be so revelatory, so releasing, and in fact, it carries with it real dangers. Um, and again, because I don't like censorship and I don't like draconian measures, I, I'm not sure that banning children from, from technology is going to be the answer. In my experience, when I was banned from anything as a child, I was straight at it, whatever means I could. You know what I mean? You just, you just one. It sets up a target. But I do think that the the way that schools deal with these things and the the, the, the schools still play a huge role in the socialisation of people. Uh, I think that we have in in our bicultural communities, we've got lots of shared ways of dealing with this and the, I, I mean one of the things i, I you know we, we i have to say this that we can we can learn from each other about dealing with this and i i i um i think that's an underestimated element of the bicultural question you know that that there are learnings about how do we make society on a day-to-day -day basis more uh more cohesive coming together more effectively I think that's exactly it. I think you've just nailed my biggest concern about our world is that we are losing that cohesion, and uh, I see it. I see it in families, and and I think that's what what I'm most afraid of is the the breakdown of families and and how they communicate with each other and how they care for each other and what happens to the children who who lose their sense of place within their own whānau. And I think that's a universal. I think it takes different forms within Māori, but it, we, we have the same form in, in Pākehā society too, that if, we, if we, our families and our, our broader, and by that I mean the extended family, is not um, acting as the village that raises the child, then they're, 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 you're, you're going to have difficulties. And I, you, you, you probably don't know this, but I spent a decade working in Te Tokorau with Anne Sam and uh, Dorothy Ehrlich Kloa. We wrote um, strategic plans for all the iwi from Murafenua down to Natifatua throughout the 90s. I spent I spent two days a week for nearly a decade up there with a big team. I was one of just a minor person, a much bigger team, right? But one of the points there we were we were um, trying to get to were economic development strategies that would include young people in in, in the iwi in 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 the community. Um, and, and give them a sense of uh, purchase, of hope, of ownership of their futures. When, as you know, some of the uh, educational indices for Māori youth up there were not particularly good, you know. So we, you could see that there was a, a, a potential difficulty arising there. And one of the things about trying to build an economic policy or strategy for Tai Tokara was to provide an underpinning that would reverse those trends, bring them, bring them together. And I, I, I just think that we've got experience of that and we should draw on it ever more strongly. Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have Juliette Greco, Sous la Celle de Paris. Why this one? 
uh, as I say, the, my two choices bookend my life. Uh, I started off um, worrying, worrying myself uh, being chased by Pinochet's goons in, in Chile. Uh, now I'm retired. I'm spending some of my time in a country I love very much indeed, which is France. And so I thought I would reflect that in this talk. Sous le ciel de Paris s'envole une chanson. Mmh. Elle est née d'aujourd'hui dans le cœur d'un garçon. Sous le ciel de Paris marchent les amoureux. Mmh. Leur bonheur se construit sur un air fait pour eux. Sous le pont de Bercy, un philosophe assis, deux musiciens, quelques badauds, puis des gens par milliers. Sous le pont de Paris, jusqu'au soir vont chanter mmh, l'hymne d'un peuple épris de sa vieille cité. Près de Notre-Dame, parfois couvain drame, oui mais à Paname, tout peut s'arranger. Quelques rayons du ciel d'été, l'accordéon d'un marinier, l'espoir fleurit au ciel de Paris Sous le ciel de Paris coule un fleuve joyeux mmh. Il endort dans la nuit les clochards et les gueux Sous le ciel de Paris les oiseaux du bon Dieu mmh. viennent du monde Entier pour bavarder entre eux. Et le ciel de Paris a son secret pour lui. Depuis vingt siècles, il est épris de notre île Saint-Louis. Quand elle lui sourit, il met son habit bleu. Il pleut sur Paris, c'est qu'il est malheureux. Quand il est trop jaloux de ses millions d'amants, mmh, mmh, il fait gronder sur nous son tonnerre éclatant. Mais le ciel de Paris n'est pas longtemps cruel. Pour se faire pardonner, il offre un arc-en-ciel. Nigel, the theme of our show is positive but not deluded. We didn't do that on purpose, it, it just turned into that. And of course we recognise that it's the, there is a need for a little bit of deluded. How do we use that sort of positive framing to overcome deficit thinking? Well, I think we've talked about some of the things. I mean, I think that the 
the messaging in the wider community and the families and the whanau is important. I think that what we do in education, um, grounding people in hope rather than in just simple economics is really important. I think our politicians need to speak more uh, frequently and clearly about the positive um, rather than the negative. Um, I, I'm a great believer that politicians shouldn't sit there sniping. When we were in opposition, one of my least comfortable bits about Labour was sniping. You know, they, that uh, taking issue with everything. You know, uh, and I've noticed that National at the moment are doing exactly the same, right? So it creates in the, in the, in the political world a negativity. It, you know, it, it's a critical thing rather than a positive thing. I'm not suggesting that National and Labour should come together, uh, give each other great big hugs and, uh, and, and share a common pot, as it were. But um, I, I think you can make the story a, a half-full story rather than a half-empty story. And I, I just think it's incumbent for leaderships to, 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 to think about that, to think about telling the positive story. New Zealand has an extraordinary story to tell to itself not just the world, about a society that is young, it's relatively new, has done extraordinary things to heal breaches that could have been catastrophic. Still got a long way to go on that, but, you know, it's, it's, it's done an extraordinary job over the period since 1840. Um, we can be really positive about that and, 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 re and build on that sense of achievement. And I, as I say, I, 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 I start with a half-full model wherever I can. Talking about the work that Labour did in opposition, Grant Robertson led a really interesting programme on the future of work. And eventually that got turned over to the Productivity Commission to, to carry on with. Do you think that the, that sort of future of work has been affected by the pandemic by, by what's been going on over the last couple of years? Oh, I, I think the economic uncertainty leads inevitably to labour market uncertainty. Though it's not that bad in New Zealand. Our unemployment rate is, is, is very low in comparison to elsewhere. We've done very well indeed. But there's no doubt that the, the general uncertainty does work its way into the labour market as it does into every every part of life. I'm I'm... I've worked for a lot of my academic career on the future of work. I, I actually wrote the Labour Party um, document on, on, on industry policy uh, some years ago. It, it, this is very close to my, to my heart. I'm, I'm a great believer in industrial democracy, where we, 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 we allow employees, workers, and I still use workers rather than employees, I have to say, workers... Uh, a sense of ownership of their product, not that, that isn't reduced simply to a wage, but I also think that that's to be that must be complemented by a broader democracy in society, a, a sense of participation at the community level. I, I I reflect on this in particular in terms of the Auckland City, the, the Auckland Council and the size of that council. Um, uh, I was never comfortable with its creation because. It created this vast body that was bound to operate in terms of cost benefits. It, it, it was so far, it, it is so far from its constituents that there'll be these layer after layer of distancing and you'll end up with a cost benefit analysis taking 
priority. I think the current mayor's done a very good job at trying to get over that. Phil's done very well on that. But in my heart of hearts, I'd like to go back to a much more diffuse, dispersed governance in places like Auckland and allow multiple voices to be heard. I, I It's going to sound a little trite, but you know, you, working up north, uh, where where you you had to arrive at a decision by discussion, it wasn't by a vote after five minutes. I I learned a huge amount of that as I did in Africa and Latin America about different ways of dispute resolution or problem solving, and I think we need to do that in New Zealand. We've got real ba uh, real basis there, but we need to lower the level where it happens. Do you think that there are lessons that we can take from the pandemic and the pandemic response? for the bigger sorts of questions that we face? I'm thinking of things like climate change or social injustice on a larger scale. Oh, look, my, 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 everything I write now about economic policy and, the, and what Labour should be doing puts climate change absolutely the centre of it. I mean, um, having a really good economic policy isn't going to be much use if we're all dead. I mean, I, 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 even I can work that out, you know. Um, uh, so I, I think that we have to sort of, uh, we do have to reprioritize what we're doing. And I think that's true for all parties. I mean, we have to take that, those issues much more seriously, particularly because the, the timeline seems to be getting shorter. And that does mean that we, um, we, we can take the sense of problem solving, I think we did very well in the pandemic, and apply it to those big uh, existential questions like the climate, climate change, that are now looming very, 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 very imminently. Of course, cl the climate change doesn't start next Tuesday, despite the, all the reports saying actually it's already here. But we still have the 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 we push it out to to twenty fifty or whenever we're pushing it out to that is far enough away that we don't have to do anything now. Whereas the the pandemic was quite clearly we needed to do something right now. How might we convey that urgency? Well, I, 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 think, I think that's a really difficult question because if people don't understand that the, you know, the international panels work on climate change and our own versions thereof are telling us how imminent the crisis is, I'm not sure, short of nailing it to their forehead on a piece of A4, A4 what we're going to do. I think what's interesting is um, layers of the business community who tend to act more immediately are now seized by this. I, I, I think there might be a strange, a strange paradox emerging where government has all the evidence that says we should be doing this, but the political will or the political process which allows it to be done becomes cumbersome or blocked or whatever. And I have to say, and forgive a party political point, National is not doing a great deal about this at the moment. They're really worrying me that they, you know, they seem to like roads, which are not necessarily a, a perfect way forward. Um, but I, I do look, watch, watch some really senior business people who've realised that their business models, that their way of sustaining employment for their workers and so forth, cannot go on uh, under, under conditions that are are, are emerging. And I, I, had, I say quite perversely, I'm wondering if that's where it's going to happen, that the business community turns around and says, guys, you can't shilly-shally any further. We're going to have to do this, that, and the other. But that will be on their terms. 
that will be on their terms, right? And so the, the, I'm worried that we'll end up with a really difficult debate about a business-led climate response tied to a market-based economic response. You follow? Do you see the? And that's 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 a scenario that's been growing on me uh, for some time. Now it may not come about. Government may suddenly seize the opportunity. National will, you know, Mr. Mr. Luxon will turn up in a green shirt tomorrow and say we are going to do this seriously. Um, but so far, I haven't seen it. But as Susan Crumdike describes the green miracle, the green solution just around the corner, which means you can carry on doing what you're doing. So you used to run an airline, um, can carry on wanting to build airports and tariffs that aren't needed because it's going to be fixed sometime. Yeah, I mean, I, I you, you can see that there's, there's some, for, for many people, there's a, it's an, an, an inexorable process of continuing doing the same thing. Because not to do the same thing is really difficult. To reallocate capital, to reallocate people, to rethink how you operate. Uh, for example, moving trade around the globe, um, where we, we, we might have to go back to combinations of sail and, and solar power on, on vessels. You know, the people are thinking in all these different ways about how trade will be continued in years to come. But when you, when you think about, say, a solar-powered, sail-powered, trading ship today versus the ships they're trying to get into the ports of Auckland, which are ever now bigger, these huge super carriers of, of container. That's a there's, there's a gulf there of huge proportions. What why would Maersk make that leap? Now I think Maersk actually will make that leap because I think Maersk is that business community that will say, hang on, this isn't going to work. And I, I I'm waiting for companies like Maersk to say, well we are really going to move forward into different ways of thinking about container movements. And possibly reframing the whole conversation about a, a positive future, a better future, not a lesser future. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that comes back to your other point, building a positive view about New Zealand in that new future. I have some questions to end the show and not very much time, so we're going to have to wriggle through them. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Um, I was thrilled with the 2020 uh, election result. Um, I, 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 for personally, I will be honest, that, that was a lot of work put on over many years. I may not have been there to see it for reasons beyond my control, but I, 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 I was thrilled by that. We are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's your superpower? My superpower? Um, I think um, a, a rather w wussy niceness. <laughs> I try and be tough and, 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 and aggressive, but I just, I just can't do it. I, I will listen to people. It's terribly boring. That is a cool superpower. <laughs> do you consider yourself to be an activist? Oh, absolutely! From from early early adolescence, I I think we're here to change the world, and if we're not doing it now, well, there's never been a more important time to do that. Where did it come from? The activism. Mm. My family, my mother's family, were founding members of the British Labour Party. They go back to radical thinkers in the nineteenth century, um, the cooperative movement, and so on. I. I 
why I'm DNA Labour isn't because I'm, I'm, I'm uncritical of Labour. It's just that my mother would turn in her grave and her mother and her mother's mother would, would all turn. It would, the, we, the earth would go off its axis because all these women were turning on their graves at my, my apostasy. So, no, I've, I've, I've been a, a, at least six generations of Labour. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Gosh, I think there's two things. One of which is I, I really like the world. I really like, uh, and I, I, I love the thought of the debate that might make it better. That's, I, I, that's, that's, gosh, I never think that's a question nobody's ever asked me before. But I actually do like the world. I like people. So, what challenge or opportunity are you looking forward to in the next year or so? I'm, I'm trying to learn to retire. It, it, it's a, I, I thought it was quite easy that you just stopped work and then, then, then drank really nice red wine with your feet up somewhere. Um, it apparently doesn't work quite like that. That the people keep on giving you things to do, and so I, I'm, 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 I'm. My goal is to try and find a balance in my seventies between work, activism, and, and and pleasure. Good luck with that. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Oh, I, I would take that really seriously as a question. I mean, I, I, I could be glib and say vote Labour, but I won't, I won't say that. I will say that um, a theme of what our conversation has been, that notion of looking at the positive and building on the positive, um, I think that requires a vast community effort, a sense of, of what we can achieve together. And I'd, I'd, I'd hope people would would think on the on the on the half full edge of the, on the end of the spectrum rather than the half empty. It really matters to me that we, we try and act, act constructively. Thank you for that, Mawira. Nigel, I'm super thankful to your mum for raising an activist son. And as a mum who's an activist mum who's raising an activist son, I hope that Jack has that same sense of responsibility to making change and being a, being the change that has really been the theme of your life. And um, I'm so excited uh, to see you know the the progress that you make with your aspirations in the future, and incredibly thankful for everything you've done in the past. It has been an, a real joy to have you on the show today, and thank you. Thanks for everything, actually. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. so sweet so I turned myself to face me but I've never caught a glimpse how the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test ch-ch-ch-changes turn and face the strain ch-ch-changes don't wanna be a richer man Change it. Turn and face the strain. Change it.
to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Bowie. I'm Samuel Manasaurus, Baden-Eaton, with Mawera Karatai, somewhere near Fakatani, and in Westmere, Auckland, we've been joined by Nigel Horworth. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Mati Wa. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.